And I pray that you would meet with us here and accomplish what no human beings can accomplish together, but what you, through your Spirit, can teach us, can strengthen us, and mold us, and draw to saving faith those that are yet separated from you. We ask this all, that you would meet with us here, in the name of our Savior, amen. Please be seated. Polycarp of Smyrna was a disciple of the Apostle John and leader among the first generation of Christians to follow the Apostles. Polycarp enjoyed a long and fruitful pastoral ministry in Smyrna, just to the north of Ephesus on the western coast of the Aegean Sea and what we now know today as the country of Turkey. Polycarp was known for his gracious pastoral gifts, coupled with his bold defense of the faith, against heretical views. One day a pagan festival was held in Smyrna and it provided the majority population time to talk with one another, time to drink wine. The celebration grew unruly and a number of Christians were arrested by Herod, Smyrna's chief of police at that time. The pagan revelers pressured the Christians to call Caesar Lord, and to burn incense in worship of the emperor's genius, that is, his unseen divine protector, to join the pagan worship and to renounce Christ this way. In the mayhem, Polycarp was hauled into the arena where the Roman proconsul demanded, take the oath and I will set you free. Revile Christ. This was Polycarp's reply, recorded by members of the church at Smyrna. Think of where he stands, facing death. He says, for six and eighty years, I have been serving him, and he has done me, and he has done no wrong to me. How then dare I blaspheme my king who has saved me? If you flatter yourself that I shall swear by the fortune of Caesar, as you suggest, if you pretend not to know me, let me frankly tell you, I am a Christian. If you wish to learn the teaching of Christianity, fix a day and let me explain. The fire which you threaten is one that burns for a little while. And after a short time, it goes out. You evidently do not know the fire of the judgment to come and the eternal punishment which awaits the wicked. But why do you delay? Go ahead. Do what you want. We could study that for a long time. The spirit, the fidelity, the courage Polycarp was tied to a stake and burned. But after a short time, the fire went out, ironically. It failed to kill him. And so they took knives and stabbed him to death. Just like us to gain a sense of that picture. Church members staring in disbelief at the half-charred now bleeding corpse of their 
long-standing beloved pastor. And I think the banner that we could put over that scene, 1 John 5, 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Polycarp was no loser, as the pagan oppressors thought. He was the victor that day, a victor of whom the world was not worthy. He lived out what we've been studying here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We see that in his statements about the judgment to come and the understanding that is there of the victory that would be his. For by this faith, verse 2, by it the people of old received their commendation. Verse 6 of this chapter, without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We certainly see that in Polycarp's example and in the example of so many of God's people through the ages. You cannot harm me. Ultimately, this is short, this is brief. The fire that you light will go out soon. You cannot harm me. This is the eye of faith that sees the real world beyond. And as we pick up in this great chapter of faith at verse 32 today, we see first of all in verses 32 and following the exploits of the victors of faith. Verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. He could go on all day recounting the exploits of people of faith as he's done in verses 3 to 31. But he will take time only to mention several more heroes of the faith as he's surveying the Old Testament from Genesis, now following through to the judges and the kings and the prophets. He doesn't even respond in chronological order, but starts with Gideon. Remember in the book of Judges, his vastly outnumbered army defeated the Midianite and the Amalekite armies. How did he do it? He trusted God. He took what looked like an insane risk, but did so because he believed God's promise. Barak, someone by Deborah, he led Israel's victory over Sisera, the commander of the Confederate Canaanite army. Sisera arrived on the field of battle with 900 chariots. Israel had none. Israel's victory that day was like an outnumbered army defeating an armored tank division with pistols. We can't even understand what it meant to have chariots in that time. But he won the victory. And how did he do it? He trusted in the power of God. Samson, man was no paragon of virtue, we know. But repeatedly, in Judges chapters 13 through 16, Samson acknowledged that his superhuman strength came from God alone. He never was confused about that. By the way, I think it's probably the truth that Samson wasn't muscle-bound. 
He probably looked like everybody else, or maybe a little smaller. He knew his power came from the Lord, and he trusted him. Final attack upon the Philistines, the attack that cost him his own life, he acted again in faithful dependence on God. Jephthah, greatly outnumbered, he led Israel to defeat the Amorite and Ammonite armies. Why? Because he trusted in God. King David, we think of Goliath, we think of the Philistines and the military security that he gained for Israel. Of Samuel and the prophets, Samuel bridging the judges and the prophets. He was a man of unusual faith who almost single-handedly held Israel together at a time of near destruction. So what is the author doing? Starting with creation in verse 3, then working through the Hebrew Bible with Abel and Genesis 4, and ending here with the judges and the prophets. He's saying the string of history of those who trusted God and were victorious in their trust. All these saints in various ways stood, withstood great odds, trusting God to fulfill His promise to them. None was foolhardy in their risk, but all took courageous risk for God. If God did not deliver as promised, if He did not protect and provide for them in battle, each one was a dead man as was the armies of Israel in in varying accounts. They went with the spirit of Saul's son, Jonathan. Do you remember the day with his armor bearer? He said, God is not limited by numbers. He can save by many, and he can save by few. They went in that spirit, trusting the Lord. Verse 33, he now just begins to summarize, piling up, Phrases that describe this history of faith. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Even the enemy of death did not win. We'll not take time to tease out the Old Testament saints whose lives are reflected in these ten descriptive phrases, but I'm sure they begin to come to mind. In fact, stopping the mouths of lions, I think certainly is Daniel, as we read here early in chapter 6 of Daniel. And the resurrection referred to here in verses 10 is probably has in view Elijah raising to life the son of the widow of Zarephath of Sidon and Elisha raising to life the Shunammite woman's son, those types of ideas, all something attached to each of these phrases. But what is the point? God accomplishes great victories. And he does so through believers who trust his promises and obey his commands. The great victories of faith continue today as well. They continue to be written. They're written every day of our lives as people stand against great opposition. And on this side of the cross, our history as Christ's followers is replete with the conquest of the gospel in unusual ways and with stunning results. I look forward to tonight and 
uh, sharing with you part of the biography of William Nibb, who was a missionary in Jamaica. And we will hear as we listen to that account of the genuine victory of the gospel among African slaves in Jamaica in the 1800s. It is unbelievable what God did in that setting. And those stories continue to be written today. Unusual accounts of the victory of the gospel as we stand on this side of the cross. The risen Savior continues to win people for His name among the nations, both in quiet, unassuming ways, and at times, as we'll look at tonight, in glorious triumphs, that you stand back and say, this is God. He is winning hearts. He is winning the victory. But there's more to the story, isn't there? We know it doesn't stop there. How we wish it would. But in the middle of verse 35, the symphonic triumph of verses 33 to 35 shifts to heavy tones as the author recounts then secondly the sufferings of the persecuted. Verse 35, in the middle of the verse there, some were tortured. So we have these great victories. I mean, just think of verse 33 and 34. The wonder of these exploits of faith. But then the reality hits home that some others were tortured. They didn't win anything. Not from a human standpoint, not from the results. Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. That doesn't mean these believers were free to leave prison and they said, no, we want to stay in order to earn eternal life. That's not the meaning. What's the meaning? As with Polycarp, I think he described exactly what's happening here. There was a way to be released. It was to renounce Christ. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the story of John Bunyan in prison and how after a time they said, we'll let you go if you will just promise not to preach the gospel anymore. I don't think they called it the gospel. But they just said, don't preach anymore and you can go home to your family. And what did he say? Release me today and I'll preach tomorrow. That's exactly an illustration of what is being stated here. There was a way to be released. Polycarp could revile Christ and go back and have dinner that night with his family. And Bunyan could promise not to preach in the name of Christ the true gospel again. And he could go home to his family and begin to care for them. But they refused release. That they might rise again to a better life. They knew that there was a world to come. Refusing to renounce Christ at the cost of imprisonment is not fueled by mere courage. It's fueled by what? It's fueled by a trust in the promise of God that even if tortured in death, the believer will rise again to a better life. I, I believe that. I know that to be the case, and therefore I make a decision that seems irrational to this world. The faithful possess solid confidence that death is gain for the believer. It is the portal to our presence with Christ in a world without sin. Prison now, followed by eternal reward, the choice is easy for the eye of faith. 
but the suffering is also very real. Verse 36. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. At times, God's people suffer as social outcasts, unable to purchase decent clothing, unable to secure decent housing. Imagine it. That's where your faith takes you. You can't care for your family. You can't deal with the things of life like everyone else does. You're an, you're an outcast. And at other times, it wasn't just get out of here. It is, where are you? They were the hunted And when captured, they were subjected to all forms of punishment and torture. Out of the context of the persecution of the church, we have recordings of an array of methods of persecution. These things believers have suffered through the ages. Stoning, burning at the stake, Stretching the body on a rack and beating it until the muscles cave in and the organs are destroyed. Torturous infliction of pain on all parts of the body in various sinister ways. Fed to lions. Throwing bodies from atop haystacks onto pitchforks. Drowning. Exposure to cold beheadings, crucifixion, and more. And out of the context of persecution in church history, we record an array of tools of the trade, swords and crosses, pitchforks, wheels on which bodies are stretched out, spun and beaten. There are instruments such as joint dislocators, racks, Bone crushers, catapults, cauldrons, burning, thumb screws, iron claws, wedges, branding irons, ropes to drag believers behind horses and ropes for hanging them, and more. This isn't fantasy land. This isn't fairy tales. This is the historical record. The tortures God's people have endured for millennia. The blood that has been spilt for no reason other than the desire to silence the truth is beyond comprehension. Christians to this day in many parts of the world are counted as sheep to be slaughtered, and many of them are. Just pick one random example. I needed to look for eight seconds on my computer. It's there every day. But just one random example, believers in Kenya and Somalia right now are reporting that groups of roving Islamic extremist attackers are coming into their villages armed with guns and knives, have killed numerous Christian villagers in an effort to intimidate the church out of existence. Several Christians were shot, stabbed, or burned beyond recognition. One woman...
She was just a woman until now, and I just realized she's a sister in Christ. One sister in Christ was tied up in force to watch the attackers behead her husband and then let go to remember. Writes one witness of their attackers, they are not happy with churches being built. And they are opposed to the preaching of the gospel. They want to threaten Christian safety so that they will run away. These are our brothers and sisters today in this one spot, in this one place of trouble. And the only end of this bloody story is the return of Christ. For more Christians were killed in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries combined. The serpent will stop his venomous attacks at nothing short of Christ's return as he vindicates the martyrs. And in the midst of all of that, we have this beautiful interrupting phrase there in verse 38. Of whom the world was not worthy... To paraphrase F.F. Bruce, he's saying the world deemed them unfit for civilized society. In truth, civilized society was unfit for them. Philip Hughes puts it this way, rejecting the world, they were ejected by the world. But they will be resurrected by the Lord to live in a better world. This they know, and this sustained them through these tortures. At verse 39, there's a shift in emphasis again as we look at the consummation of the story. So the, explo- the exploits of the victors. And then this, this major transition. I really wish the uh, verse had divided there, verse 35, differently. But uh, the some were tortured that we see there in verse 35. In the Greek is a, is a place of definite transition So we have the victors first, but then also those who have suffered persecution. Now the consummation of it all, verses 39 and 40. Verse 39, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. That they did not receive the ultimate reward of God's promises in this lifetime. Even those who were gloriously victorious in their exploits for God did not receive the full reward of their faith. This world provides nothing final, nothing lasting, nothing ultimate. The story is never finished here. But why or in what sense did they not receive the fulfillment of God's promises to them? Verse 40, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. That is, the fulfillment of God's promises are found in Christ, ultimately. The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Now, Christ existed. He existed from all eternity past. But they did not see Him. They did not know Him as the crucified, risen Savior. And all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. It says here in verse 40 that God had provided something better for us. I think in the context of the book of Hebrews, this is talking about everything He's been talking about. 
The new covenant promises, the better covenant, the better priesthood, the better sacrifice, the better promises of Jesus. So that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They, that is, they will realize their reward in conjunction with us in Christ, in relationship to Jesus' death and resurrection, all of God's people of all ages are saved and united together as one. The old covenant saints are now glorified in heaven and have come to understand that their redemption was won for them by Christ. They were saved in a manner of speaking on credit. They now see that. They now see Jesus and His work as the essence of all that they suffered and all for which they served in faith. They now understand that their faith is vindicated by Christ's entrance into the world, by His final sacrifice for sin, and by His resurrection. And one day, we will enter glory with them, and Christ will be at the hub of it all. There, united to Christ, saved by His grace alone, we will celebrate forever our redemption from sin, from the curse, along with the saints of old who have gone ahead of us. Forever we will experience fullness of joy in Christ's presence. So the author brings this account to a crescendo, to an end here as he considers this walk of faith that we are part of. And I, I'd like to just take a few moments here now and just think on the whole chapter and some ideas, some conclusions. Many more could be added. This isn't exhaustive. But I think these are w- words of instruction, encouragement, and focus for us as we think about living as people of faith in this fallen world. The first is this. Every victory of faith And every persecution suffered is a reflection of Jesus Christ. It's tied in to Him. Jesus is the ultimate victor. No victory of faith is ever going to overcome His victory, but is grounded in it. Jesus is the ultimate victor who conquered every kingdom and defeated the ultimate enemy, death. But... Jesus is also the one who suffered the ultimate persecution. He suffered the worst torture human beings can inflict and suffered abandonment by the Father so that we would never have to. He died in excruciating pain, as many have through the ages, but all of those who have suffered such a death for Christ have done so knowing of the victory that He's won. Jesus suffered all of that pain and torture with a sense of abandonment by the Father. And so in that was the ultimate suffering. Jesus is the perfection of all faith conquests and the fulfillment of all righteous suffering. All of God's people that experience one or the other or both and lock into the work of Christ. The church's suffering for Christ is a filling up of all the suffering that will contribute to the salvation of all of His people for all of eternity. So the heroes of faith depicted in this chapter are truly heroes to be emulated. But we must remember that their victories and their suffering are merely the moon 
that reflects the shining sun, which is Jesus Christ, crucified the sufferer and risen the victor. Secondly, we certainly see in this chapter that God is unfazed by numbers. You, you, you haven't read the Bible if you haven't caught that idea, right? It, it, it's just again and again we see it. He's just not intimidated by numbers. God's people are always a vastly outnumbered minority. And we're winning God is not intimidated by the majority ever. We must understand that living by faith requires standing courageously against overwhelming odds. Always has, always will, until we meet Christ. Christian, we're the away team. We're not the home team. The stands are screaming against us. The field seems tilted the other way. That's who we are. God is not phased. May we learn to not be. Number three, God loves to use weak vessels to accomplish His purposes. It locks together with the previous point. He loves to use weak vessels. If you see yourself as strong, you're not walking by faith. The strong are deluded to think they don't need God. But true faith rests in God's strength to conquer what He alone can conquer. That's the whole point, to provide the grace to persevere through what He alone can empower us to endure. How can we know if we would stand like Polycarp against the threat of a torturous death? The answer is to see yourself as spiritually weak, not strong and self-sufficient. The answer is to live every day of our lives dependent, prayerful, trusting Christ, building that confident faith in Him every day of our lives so that if we were put up against a stake, this is just another place to trust God. Because when you stand before the mocking crowd at school or the ridicule of your workmates or the oppression of governing officials who demand that you deny Christ in one form or another, the only thing you will have in that moment is faith in God. You will not have your own courage, your own strength. Not in a good way. You will just have faith in God. So Christian, are you building that faith today in the trenches? Little by little, in the mundane moments of life, building that faith. That's all we have as we stand against the tidal wave of oppression. Faith that what He has promised is true. Faith that God exists is always there, will never leave us or forsake us, and rewards those who seek Him. Verse 6. And faith in our eternal home. Which leads to the next point. 
Number four, people of faith develop an informed conviction and a robust confidence in the reality of heaven. Again, my shameless promotion here for tonight, but William Nibb's biography, you will see in that account how all of the key players in that mission, in that family, in that life of difficulty had a robust sense of heaven. I mean, it, it, was, it was just on the other side of that unlocked door. And every single day, they knew they could be pushed through that door very easily. There was a sense of the glories of heaven and of our going there. If you're living for this world, you will hold on to it tightly and you will come to hate it in the process. If you live for the world to come, you will gain it and find many joys in this world as well because you'll rightly relate to this world. We can only enjoy this world as we hold it loosely and know that there is a better country in our future. If we don't see that right, we won't relate to anything here in the right way. Number five, true faith lives for Christ's glory in the advance of the gospel. I I think we have to ask in light of Hebrews chapter 11, Christian saint, what are you getting done for Christ? What are you getting done for the advance of his kingdom? I think there's two types of people, generalizing, but basically two types of people who hear that question. For some, it's a necessary wake-up call. You're living for self, you're serving self, you're doing nothing to advance the cause of Christ. There's something wrong there. But another respondent are those who need to just be encouraged. When it seems your days are consumed with dishes and diapers and running errands and walking through logistical problems, it can seem that we are getting nowhere for Jesus. When it seems all you do is survive the work week and then recover for the next, it can seem like you're doing nothing to serve the gospel. Some of it, however, for those with tender conscience along these lines, some of it is to just think differently. And I would encourage you, if you're there, and just say, I get so discouraged about what I'm not doing for Christ. Think corporately. Not just individually. It's not just you as an individual, but it is us as the people of God. Think prayerfully. Pray for, give to, pull for the advance of the gospel through your church, through the labors of others. Join in the process of what is happening. Not just what you are doing, but what we are doing as the people of God. Saturate your day in dependent faith in Christ. He is the one who calls you to the life that you are living. And if the life that you are living is the one that He has called you to, live it with confidence and fidelity. But live it in prayer. Depend upon Him in prayer every day. Serve Him in your work with joy and zeal for His glory. Number six, and finally, 
People of faith form a fraternity that stretches across the centuries and will culminate in grand reunion. That Christian gives us solid footing. It's not just my little story. It's not just my little family story. We are part of a grand heritage. We are connected organically in Christ to the people of God and of faith through the centuries. The Christian faith will make you a pilgrim. And it will make you a historian. Or, if you don't like that word, it will feed you rich stories of faith that form a rich heritage in the faith. It will provide deep roots and glorious victories in worldwide pervasive suffering for Christ. These are our people. This is our story. It binds us across the ages, let alone across countries and other types of divides. So as we look back, we look back as the people of God. We look back, we're grounded in regard as we sing for all the saints who from their labors rest, who thee by faith before the world confessed. As we look back, we exult and sing, Thou, God, wast their rock, their fortress, and their might. Thou, Lord, their captain in the well-fought fight. Thou in the darkness dread, their one true light. Alleluia. Alleluia. And then as we look at the present, we sing in song, O may thy soldiers, faithful, true, and bold, fight as the saints who nobly fought of old and win with them the victor's crown of gold. Alleluia. Alleluia. And then we look to the future and we sing in hope. But lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day the saints' triumphant rise in bright array. The King of glory passes on His way. Alleluia. Alleluia. That glimpse. That moment of seeing Messiah proceed through the crowd. There He is. There He is. And the procession broadens. From earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast, through gates of pearl, streams in the countless host, singing to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Alleluia. Alleluia. We don't know what that day will look like. We don't know how the procession will proceed but we will sing praise God. On that glorious day, the faith will be sight. Sin will be no more. The curse lifted, the Savior reigning. And the saints all vindicated. The decapitated, the pierced, the crucified, the burned, the skewered, the tortured. And in Christ's presence, we will for the first time know fullness of joy.
For now, brothers and sisters, we live by faith in Jesus, crucified, risen, ascended, reigning, and coming again. Are you ready to meet him? Do you want to meet him? If so, sing for joy to the Lord, because that desire to want to be with Christ is a gift from Christ. It's a mercy. If you've not received that mercy, I would plead with you. Your only hope in life and death is to turn from your sin and to embrace Christ as Savior. And I would plead with you. Ask Him for that desire. And in the asking, you can be certain of His grace and of His kindness and of His extension of salvation to you. He longs to save. And for all eternity, we will sing to the praise of His glorious name. It's not a pretty picture right now. So much suffering, so much difficulty. But the day will come when the faith is sight and Christ reigns. Are you living for that day? If you're not, you're deluded, confused, and need to walk forward in faith. May we help each other do that as the body of Christ. Father, we praise you for these reminders. Those who have gone before were convicted, awed, and filled with rejoicing. Lord, may we be faithful to stand against the ridicule of this world as it despises you. And we find ourselves living in a culture where the ridicule just continues to grow. The hatred for your truth, the hatred for your people who stand for truth doesn't seem to be getting any better. And Lord, we can see very clearly how quickly we could even face physical persecution for simply reading the Bible as some in North America have already faced, but certainly for believing and teaching what your word teaches. God, give us strength to be developing and growing in our faith, our trust and confidence in you each and every day. Help us as we strive to win the little victories of faith that no one sees, but that you, by your grace, are working out in our lives as as your people. And may we, when we face persecution, stand faithfully for Jesus, knowing who our people are, knowing which family we're in, And knowing that while it's an away game for us today, this is a short visit. May we be filled as a church with longing for that day in your presence, that eternal and glorious day. Draw to Christ, we pray, those who know him not. And may we join together hand in hand as pilgrims on a journey to a kingdom to come. May you aid us to that end. We pray, we ask you to do this by your Spirit in our lives. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.